Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. So parents are kind of figuring things out on their own, how to help their kids get the most out of virtual or hybrid learning, and and there's this concern that that's going to deepen inequities. I'm your host, Alan Weil. With the spread of COVID-19, schools and child care centers closed quickly in the spring of 2020, with many remaining closed or providing services only virtually well into the fall. We know schools provide critical educational services, but their role in the lives of children is much broader. Today, I'll be talking with Jessica Bylander, senior editor and correspondent here at Health Affairs. Ms. Bylander wrote a piece entitled, How COVID-19 Threatens the Safety Net for U.S. Children, which appeared in our October 2020 issue focused entirely on children's health. Jessica Bylander, welcome to A Health Podacy. It's nice to be here. Your piece explores different dimensions of the implications of school closures beyond just how education is disrupted. One topic you focus on is food. Why is it that schools play such a critical role when it comes to feeding our children? So yeah, um, schools and child care centers provide healthy meals to just millions of kids. I think a lot of kids rely on schools for their nutrition for the week. The free lunch program dates back to the 1940s to combat hunger and malnutrition. And now schools provide free and reduced price school lunches and breakfast. I think USDA says almost 14% of U.S. households with kids were food insecure in 2019. So... With the closing of schools and childcare centers, you have this loss of food source for so many kids. What have the schools done to try to respond to this situation so that their kids aren't going hungry? Mm-hmm. So yeah, when schools weren't physically open anymore, they had to find other ways to get foods to kids. I write about the three main ways. One of them is, you know, schools during the summer have mechanisms in place to provide foods to food to some kids, so they expanded that. Um, But there was also some innovative new programs to provide food to kids. So yeah, many schools became a pickup site and families could go and grab food. I think they could grab up to two meals, a breakfast and a lunch for the day. Some schools were able to deliver meals to children's homes. And then um, a new program that was created is called Pandemic EBT. And that provided a card to families who would have received free school meals when the schools were open and it had the cash value of those school meals so um, families could use that to buy groceries. So so many kids were served by those programs, but there's a concern that, you know, some fell through the cracks and weren't getting the level of nutrition they were getting in school. Yeah, you know, I live in uh, Northern Virginia, Fairfax County, which is the 10th largest school district in the country. And I remember when the schools closed, the first thing they did was have these pickup options, but then they actually turned the school bus routes into delivery routes for food. So it sounds like we aren't the only district that took that approach. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned this emergency program and something you reported on really stood out for me, which is that they provided benefits to families, but the the amount of the benefits was just what it had historically cost the schools to provide meals. But that's really different from what it costs a family to feed their own kids. Can you expand on that a little more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so schools, like many huge businesses, they mass procure food. So the cost per meal is going to be very low because they have that economy of scale. And um, so when you think about the EBT card that has the, the costs that the schools were reimbursed for their meals, that was, I think, in most states, three fifty for lunch and $2.20 for breakfast. So a total of $5.70 a day, or I think $114 a month. That's 
that's not going very far in your local grocery store. And the reimbursements were a little bit higher in Alaska and Hawaii. But yeah, so, so the concern is that money won't go too far if you're buying food on the private market. On the plus side, there aren't any rules against using both the pandemic EBT card and the school meal pickups. So families actually could, could make the money stretch a little bit further by using both options. Another group of families you describe in your piece is families with children with disabilities. So many of the services those kids get are provided in schools. What did you learn as you wrote your piece about what families with children with disabilities are facing in this environment? I mean, I learned a lot. I I definitely, to be honest, wasn't familiar with this landscape. And I talked to two parents, one in Chicago and one in Louisiana who have kids with special needs. Um, And both those parents were facing really similar challenges. I think most people, many people like me don't realize that children with disabilities receive just a ton of therapies at school, a bulk of their therapies, um, thanks to the Rehabilitation Act. So one of the moms I spoke with, Catherine Hart in Louisiana, her kid has just extreme healthcare needs. And so he's receiving a nurse, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. He has a teacher for the visually impaired and other special education teachers. And he's getting that, he was getting that all at school. So when the schools closed, that just stopped for a while. And you can imagine the problems. For her, it was physical regressions. Her son ended up hospitalized twice for problems that she says could have been caught earlier or prevented if he'd been having his normal therapies. Um, And then you have behavioral regressions. The mom I talked to in Chicago, Naomi Shapiro, she saw a lot of behavior regressions in the form of like attention-seeking behavior. And it was just a really hard time managing the behavior, doing virtual therapy, and working from home. So I can only imagine the levels of disruption. So partly you've lost routine. The kids aren't going to school every day. Partly you've lost access to the therapies which were provided at the school. And then, as you just noted, the parents have other responsibilities, work and the like. They can't monitor and take over these functions even if they were trained to do so. So I don't even quite know how to ask this question, but what do these families do? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it runs the gamut. Some families are able to provide, to help at least with virtual therapies. So I think both the mothers I talked to, they were able to be at home with their kids. So they were, you know, on the iPad with the therapist trying to trying to help their kid with their physical therapy or they received exercises they could do at home with the kids for speech therapy. And so they were doing the best they could, but it's really not reaching the level of therapies they were receiving in school. And that's kind of what they said across the board. And then you can imagine, you know, some parents aren't home, aren't able to work from home. And so they aren't able to provide those therapies. So some families have the resources to pay out of pocket for care, to get some private care. Um, And unfortunately, some parents just aren't able to do anything. So those are the steps the parents took. The school is still there, the personnel, the staff, the people organizing services. Obviously, the kids can't come into the school, but what is the school's role in trying to handle this huge disruption? Yeah, I think after the initial period when when schools in the spring closed and really nothing was happening, they did, you know, step in and help set up the virtual therapies so that the kids were connected virtually to the extent possible to the therapist. But, you know, they they weren't physically open and weren't able to be physically open for care. 
And I know now this fall, Catherine Hart told me recently that her school district started hybrid learning and they did bring back kids with low incidence disabilities. So those kids are able to come in four times a week and her son is back to receiving all his therapies at school, which was sort of her preference. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break here. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of health affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading peer-reviewed health policy journal today. As a nonpartisan forum, health affairs addresses today's leading issues in healthcare. Look at the articles from our October issue. Janet Curry explains why the U.S. underinvests in child health, while Dolores Acevedo-Garcia explores community-level health equity opportunity gaps. By subscribing, not only do you have access to more than 30 years of health affairs back catalog, but also access to a head of print articles. Subscribe by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. Climate change is affecting how we live. With wildfires raging and the number of natural disasters increasing, policy changes are being developed to address the effects of climate transformation. The upcoming December 2020 health affairs issue explores how health policy is reacting to our planet's new normal. Don't miss this critical issue. Subscribe to the journal by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. And we're back with Jessica Bylander on a health policy talking about children's health. You've described for us, uh, tremendous challenges that families have confronted as schools have closed. All of this plays out in a society with tremendous uh, income inequality. Uh, you've mentioned that some families could step in using their own resources to meet food needs or serving their children, but obviously it's a real struggle for others. How did you see that inequality playing out as you were preparing this story? I mean, I, I could just imagine when you talk about the gamut of people who provide services at home, pay out of pocket or or do nothing. I think, unfortunately, the less resources you have, the more likely you're falling on that side of the spectrum where you're not able to do anything. Not every parent is able to work from home. So how are they going to provide that virtual therapy during the day? Maybe a family member could do it or they could have a caregiver who does it, but that's, I mean, that's very expensive. And besides that, I think virtual therapy, most families agreed, wasn't the same as that in-person care. Um, and now that things are opening up a bit and some therapists are able to do more in-person care, there's a shortage of providers and the cost of paying for that therapy out of pocket is just really prohibitive. So unfortunately, you know, the fewer resources you have, the more likely your kids are just not getting care when schools are closed. And inequality in this country has a significant racial dimension. Children of color have a double burden. Their families, as we know from the data, are bearing a disproportionate share of the health burden and the economic burden. And then they're in schools that are less likely to have resources, more likely to be in schools that are, and child care centers that are closed. How do we, as a nation engage with the racial side of this as a 
as a necessary precursor to addressing the inequities you've reported on? My article talks about this huge role that schools are playing as a public health and a social safety net for kids before the pandemic. But I think the bottom line is they were already struggling to fulfill that role. And the sense is they just, they don't have the resources to do all that they're expected to do. And that's particularly true for schools that serve Black communities. And there's this worry. So parents are kind of figuring things out on their own, how to help their kids get the most out of virtual or hybrid learning. And there's this concern that that's going to deepen inequities because families with resources are going to be able to hire tutors or caregivers to facilitate remote learning. And then parents without resources are doing that on their own. And that's just from what we know, going to fall predominantly along racial and socioeconomic lines. Um, So one pediatrician I spoke to, Rhea Boyd, worries that this is going to leave generations of kids behind, particularly children of color. Uh, It's a dire forecast, but it seems to be borne out by the evidence. Did she offer thoughts uh, about how we try to avoid this really awful outcome? So addressing the inequity involves adequately funding schools, so they do meet the social safety net need, but also just strengthening the safety net more broadly so that kids have the food they need, so they have a safe place to go, a safe place to play, so they have more financial security, and they're not relying on schools so much to meet these needs. And there's a quote from Boyd that really struck with me, which is, your family doesn't need an EBT card if you make a living wage, and you don't need a moratorium on evictions if everyone can afford their rent and mortgage. So there's these piecemeal things you can do to provide meals here and there. But um, what Boyd was talking about that definitely struck with me is a broader redistribution of wealth, which is what I think many people are arguing for. Well, before we close, I just want to uh, take a moment to ask you about this more on the professional side for you. You're an editor here at Health Affairs, but you also wrote this entry point. Uh, Not everyone gets to balance the editing and writing, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it is you like about the writing, what it is you like about the editing, and how it is you've been able to put these two together. So I see myself, I think, as a writer first and foremost. I was a journalist before coming to Health Affairs. I studied writing and and journalism um, in school. And I, you know, I'm an introvert, I think, like most editors at Health Affairs, but I I do like talking to people and I love learning from them. And every time, you know, I take on a new story, I learn something. This this topic was new to me and I learned a ton in the reporting on it. So what I love is just kind of gathering all the different sources and then sitting down and puzzling them together to figure out the best way to tell the story so that other people can learn and to make it sort of digestible um, and understandable for folks. And then editing, I think, similarly, you take somebody else's great raw material and then you sort of tweak it and sharpen it to make it tell the story in the best way possible. And I think that's what draws me to editing, even though I'd say writing is definitely my first love. You're the editor of our Narrative Matters series, which is wildly popular and an incredible resource having to do with people telling their own stories. I wonder if you could talk about what you've learned from editing Narrative Matters that helps make you a better writer. Oh, that's a great question. Um, and actually, I, I should mention that this month's Narrative Matters by Carla Kearns is um, kind of on this a similar topic. Her son is blind and receives a lot of his services at school. And so it touches on the similar topic of not just a huge role that schools play in providing these services, but also just the complexity for parents and navigating them. I think the sense is like you'd have to be 
a doctor, a lawyer, uh, an expert on disability policy, just to make sure that your kids are getting all the services they need in schools. And so Carla's essay tells that story so vividly, and I, I would definitely recommend people check it out. And the Narrative Matters section just, you know, puts a face to these health policy issues. And I think that's what makes it so popular is it just humanizes it and allows people into the world of someone who's facing these issues and, you know, provides some thoughts towards solutions, but also just really illustrates the human face of of these policy problems. The narrative matters that we publish uh, are submitted by people who've had experiences that they think are worth sharing. How would someone go about submitting a piece like that to you? I love reading people's stories, and I definitely encourage folks to submit. You know, we can't unfortunately publish every piece we get, but I really enjoy reading every single one of them. And I know it takes a lot of courage to share your personal story. So I would recommend just, you know, checking out our website. There's some guidelines for what we're looking for in a story, you know, you know, having a story arc and using scenes and those kind of tips. But um, I would just recommend checking out the guidelines and then sending your story to us because I I think we'd all um, be interested in reading it. We've even had Narrative Matters poetry. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah, over the years, published poetry from time to time. And I think over the last three or four years, we've held two poetry contests. And then the April issue this year, we published three wonderful poems. And I encourage folks to check that out. And then we also have um, a book out this year that collects Narrative Matters essays from, I think, the past six or seven years of this section. And um, they're just an excellent collection. And that's out from the Johns Hopkins University Press. So I'd also encourage folks to read that. I was just going to ask about the book. but lead me to. <laughs> The narrative matters are about personal experience. The October issue was focused on children. What are the unique elements of writing a narrative piece about a child who doesn't really have their own voice in the story? Uh, that's something I think writers, especially physician writers, struggle with all the time, you know, who who gets to tell this story. So I don't necessarily know if there's an answer to it. I think, you know, when you tell the story of a child on their behalf, even if it's your own child, similarly to when you tell the story of one of your patients, um, there is sort of a level of, you know, you can get their permission to the extent that you can, but there is this level of sort of taking someone else's story and telling it. But I think the way you balance that is is if it's an extremely important story to tell and if sharing it will, you know, hopefully make the world a better place, I think that you can justify sort of being the voice for someone else. Well, Jessica, it's great having you as a work colleague and as a guest on A Health Podacy. Uh, I really appreciate the insight you've provided substantively on this critical topic of the role schools play, but also some of the thought process that goes into writing an effective entry point. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. A Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. Jeff Byers produces the show under the direction of Patty Sweet. Brian Dobbs edits the show. Sue Ducat and Sarah Kolk help dot the I's and cross the T's with scheduling. Julia Vivalo produced the artwork. Music by Brian Dobbs and Julia Vivalo. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. 
Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.